0: Welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. I'm your host, Julian. I hope you enjoyed our episode last week about police and reform, which featured a great interview with Lucy Lang. I thought that inter- that interview and the whole episode was great. I hope you agree. If you didn't get to catch that episode, I highly recommend going back and checking it out, at least for a part of it. So this week, we're going to talk about voting. People have been talking about this upcoming presidential election and then the other elections that go along with it in November in the context of How is voting really going to work in the context of a pandemic? So I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about other systemic ways that our democratic republic and the way that we vote is inherently flawed. So there are three main ways that attempts to make the vote of every citizen not count equally. The first way is intentional and ingrained in the system and dates back to the Declaration of Independence and the founders and what their intentions were. The second way is a way that politicians take advantage of to benefit themselves. And the third way is a way that's super blatant and really should be illegal. So the first way is the Electoral College and the Senate. So if you've paid attention to presidential elections, you know that every election, we focus on like these like six swing states that decide the entirety of the election, and everybody else is basically on the sidelines cheering and hoping that their candidate does well in Florida and Ohio, which really isn't how it should work, because if you're in Florida and Ohio or North Carolina or Arizona or some swing state, your vote really shouldn't be more important than somebody who lives in a city or in a rural community somewhere where their state is a lock to be Democratic or Republican, so nobody really cares about that state. So not only do those states really not matter, but in terms of the electoral math, each state has a certain number of electoral votes that goes towards electing the president. Whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes, but people aren't being represented equally. For example, in California, they have 55 electoral votes, which is the most, but per every electoral vote, there are 718,000 people per that one electoral vote. That's the biggest state. In Wyoming, in Wyoming, it's 193,000 people per electoral vote. That's a huge discrepancy. And that means that the votes of people in Wyoming, but that's just an example. In every state that has a lower population, their votes matter more than people on the coast and in cities where the states are larger. For using that same example, a voter in Wyoming has 3.7 times the influence of a voter in California because there are fewer electoral votes per person in California and in Wyoming Each person has more power because the ratio of people to electoral votes is different. So that's one way that sort of helps helps smaller states as opposed to bigger states. But the more blatant way is that if you know about Congress, there are two houses in Congress, the House of Representatives and then the Senate. In the Senate, which is probably a little bit more powerful than the House of Representatives, although it's close, every state, regardless of their population, has two senators. But since, at least right now, Republicans do better in smaller states and Democrats generally do do better in larger states because people in cities are more likely to be Democrats and people in rural communities in the country are more likely to be Republicans, because of that imbalance, those Democratic states have less power than Republican states. Since Republicans can win Wyoming and South Dakota, but Democrats will win New York and California. But those states have the same amount of power in the Senate, which is not how it should be because nine states make up half the U.S. population, but those nine states only make up 18% of the Senate. So in those two ways, the Electoral College and the Senate, those are ways that were set in by our Constitution, but those advantage small states as opposed to big states, and that balance benefits Republicans over Democrats. Where you can see an example of that is that in two of the last five elections the for president, the candidate who got more votes did not actually win. Hillary Clinton in 2016 had more votes than Donald Trump, and Al Gore in 2000 had more votes than George Bush, but both of them lost because of the way that the Electoral College benefits smaller states and thus benefits Republicans. So that's the first way that's ingrained in our Constitution and in our Democratic Republic. The second way is called gerrymandering. So every 10 years after the census comes out, where we count everyone living in the US, every state redistricts. So based on a bunch of factors that you'll hear about in our interview later, they redraw the districts that make up the House of Representatives and the districts that make up the state houses. And they redraw those districts In a way that's supposed to be fair and represent those people but in many states they do gerrymandering which is when the party in power draws the districts in a way that benefits their party to help them get more power you learn all about that in our interview how that works we have an expert coming on later but you I'm just gonna show you the effects of these things in Pennsylvania in 2014 40% of the votes for House congressional candidates were for Democrats but because of the way the districts had been gerrymandered, democrats only won 28% of the seats. That's a huge contrast. Ideally, if 20, if 40% of the votes were for democrats, democrats should have won 40% of the seats. But because republicans were in charge of redistricting in 2012, they drew the districts in a way that would benefit themselves and hurt republicans. So they so the and hurt so that would benefit themselves and hurt democrats. So that democrats would not be fully represented. There are many other examples of that. In that same year, in Ohio, 40% of the votes were for Democrats, for Congress, but Democrats only won a quarter of the seats. Two years later, in North Carolina, Republicans had 53% of the votes, but won 77% of the seats. In all three of those states, Republicans were in charge of redistricting, so they tipped the scales to advantage themselves. so So they had a disproportional amount of power in Congress, compared to the amount of votes and support they got at the ballot box. Overall, looking at the country, in 2012, Democrats won 1.1 million more votes for Congress, but Republicans were able to send 33 more members to Congress because the Republicans in 2012 gerrymandered the districts and tipped the scales so that Republicans would be able to have more power without actually the voters choosing it. Something that is often talk about, talked about, because politicians are the ones who get to draw their own district is that voters aren't actually really choosing their politicians all the time. The politicians are choosing their voters. They're deciding what kind of people they want to vote for them. So a Republican with a lot of power is going to want their district to be safe. So they're going to make sure that their district has a lot of Republicans in it. And they're going to make sure that there are more Republican districts than Democratic districts. And they're going to try to tip the scales as much as possible. But you'll learn a lot more about that later with our guest, Theodore S. Arrington, um, a legend in North Carolina politics. So the next thing I want to talk about, which he will also talk a lot about, is voter suppression. So you you can argue that gerrymandering and the Electoral College and the Senate are forms of voter suppression, and they probably are, but this voter suppression that I'm about to talk about is much more blatant, and it refers to stopping people from literally exercising their right to vote. And there are many ways in which this happens. There are voter ID laws, there are arcane restrictions on registering to vote, there's purging voter rolls, there's closing polling locations, and there is disenfranchising voters based on their criminal history. So I'm gonna go one by one and try to explain a few of those in a little bit more depth. So 36 states require some sort of voter ID, which seems fine. I don't have an ID because I'm not 21, but I already have my, my learner's permit to drive, which counts as identification. But 21 million Americans just don't have an ID. And those people are disproportionately in poverty and minorities. And the, and the politicians making these voter ID laws know that. They're trying to disenfranchise and disadvantage voters in poverty and voters who are minorities who are more likely to vote for Democrats. And also, it's Republicans and Trump has said this a lot lately. They always say, like, oh, you need that or else someone will just go vote. But nobody is going to the poll to go pretend to be someone else and vote because that's literally risking five years in prison and a $10,000 fine, which is a lot. I would not risk that. And it's for, like, one vote, which is not going to make the difference in an election. From 2000 to 2014, in a 14-year period, there were 41 possible voter fraud out of 41 possible cases of voter fraud out of 1 billion ballots. That's basically non-existent. Anyone making that argument is lying and trying to disenfranchise voters who are more likely to be Democrats. So the arcane restrictions that I talked about, this is brief, but a lot of states make you register a certain amount of time in advance before you can actually vote. My state, New York, does this, and many states do it. And there's really no reason that you shouldn't just be able to show up, register, and then vote. We should be trying to make voting as easy as possible, not as hard as possible. So purging voter rolls has been talked about recently because this happened a lot before the 2016 gubernatorial election in Georgia. So 70% of Georgia voters who were purged before the election in 2018 were Black. Which is not a coincidence because the Secretary of State at the time, who was a Republican, was running for governor against a black Democratic challenger, Stacey Abrams. So that's clearly intentional. So across the country, 1 in 13 black Americans cannot vote due to disenfranchisement laws. Republicans within power are actively trying to suppress the vote of minorities who are more likely to be Democrats to retain their own political power. And it's not just minorities. One-third of voters who have a disability report that they've had difficulty voting for a variety of reasons because only 40% of polling places really accommodate people with disabilities. So just all those things, like we should be trying to make it easier, not harder for people to vote. The U.S., out of all the developed democracies in the world, the U.S. has the worst voter participation, and part of that is a cultural thing, but a large part of that is because of restrictions and actions like these. So the last example is from fairly recent in the um, primary in Kentucky, the Democratic primary first Senate. In Kentucky, a lot of people live in Jefferson County. That's where half the state's black voter lives, and it's the biggest county. But there, they closed down every single polling place in Jefferson County, but one. There was one polling place in Jefferson County for 600,000 people, where half the state's black voters live. In Georgia, that, si- that same week in their, um, in their primary, there were, uh, there were lines where people were literally sitting in line for four hours just to cast their one vote. And across the country, counties with larger minority populations have far fewer polling sites and far fewer poll workers per voter. It really shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't try be trying to devalue votes and devalue specific voters based on who they're going to vote for. We politicians shouldn't be choosing who gets to vote based off who they're going to vote for. That's not how it should work. But there are pretty simple solutions for a lot of these things. In the beginning, I talked about the Electoral College and the Senate. It's really not that hard to get rid of these things. They are ingrained in our Constitution, but Why can't we just have the person who gets more votes wins for president? That's what we all thought a democracy was when we were five, but then we grew up to to learn that, no, the person who doesn't get more votes wins. The person who wins in these six swing states wins, which really isn't how it should work. And the Senate, I talked about that before, and a lot of prominent Democrats are talking about this right now because the Senate, the way it's structured, disadvantages Democrats, and that's been really hard for them to overcome. One of the ways they can do this is give statehood to DC and Puerto Rico. The, the House, which is full of Democrats right now, just passed a resolution to make DC a state, but it's almost definitely not going to pass in the Senate and definitely won't be signed by President Trump. But DC has more population than two states. And for all states, it has an average GDP, which is basically the measure of how strong their economy is and how large their economy is. And Puerto Rico is basically an, would basically be an average size state and it's already a U.S. territory. Like, these two places specifically are being taxed without representation, which, if you've learned this, being taxed without having representation in the government is the reason why the American Revolution started, but now we're oppressing the residents of D.C. and the residents of Puerto Rico because we're taking their money for our social services but not giving them a vote. So it's really not that complicated. We should give statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico because they deserve to be states, and also, it would right some of the wrongs in the way the Senate is structured. So I talked about gerrymandering, and our guest will talk about the solution later, but lawmakers shouldn't be the one drawing their own districts. In 21 states already, there are independent, nonpartisan, or bipartisan commissions that draw the districts based off the actual criteria that it's supposed to be, and not based on advantaging one political party. It's really not that complicated. Almost half the states already do it. Every state should do it, definitely. And for the long lines and the voter suppression, we really just, this is about a value and like electing the right people to office and who we trust to uphold our democracy and not just keep themselves in power. So I know that this has been a lot and it's been disheartening probably and it's showed the ways that your vote doesn't really count all the time or the way that they're trying to make your vote not really count but the intention of this episode is to show you why your vote counts because because they're trying to take away your power in voting it's your responsibility to make sure that you vote and make sure that you elect people into power who support a representative democracy and who aren't trying to suppress the vote or choose their own districts, or advantage their political party based on the structure of our democracy. So, next, we have an interview with Theodore S. Arrington, who was the chair of the Board of Elections in Charlotte, North Carolina, for 12 years, and even served as the chair of the Board of Elections in Charlotte for six years. He used to be, he's retired now, but used to be the head of the poli-sci department at UNC. He advises many candidates for office, and he has been an expert witness in dozens of cases relating to the Voting Rights Act. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. How are you?
0: I'm good. So nice to meet you. Okay, so I saw that you were on the, um, the Board of Elections in Charlotte for 12 years, and then I think it said you were the chair for five or six years. What, what is the Board of Elections, and what does it do, and what did you do while you were there?
1: The Board of Elections runs the whole election. Uh, they buy the machines that are going to be used. They appoint the people uh, who will be staffing the voting places on Election Day. Uh, they enforce rules. The about uh, elections like, for example, uh, if somebody is getting campaigning too close to the election place, uh, they would go out and warn them to back off. Uh, and then they count the votes. Uh, they do the accounting process to make sure that all of the records are synced, uh, that, rec- that the votes were accurately counted. Uh, ultimately, they're the ones who add up the votes from all the precincts. I add in the uh, absentee votes uh, and then say, this person won and that person lost. Uh, they also count uh, all the absentee votes directly. Uh, they approve, uh, and I think they still do approve, uh, uh, all of the absentee voters. So if somebody submits an application to absentee votes, they're the ones who sign off and say, yes, this vote will be counted. Uh, and they keep the records for local candidates for their uh, uh, financial records, uh, make sure that they submit those on time, and uh, then they audit those to make sure uh, that they're accurate. Now, keep in mind uh, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of Elections is a big operation with many employees, and so the Board of Elections is doing all of that stuff Directly, <laughs> they're supervising those. Uh, but nevertheless, they are responsible for all of that stuff.
0: Oh, uh, so when you were there, did Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Heckenberg, right? That's what it's called? Charlotte Mecklenburg. Yeah. yeah. Mecklenburg is the county. Oh. Uh, that, okay. election, or if,
1: that does both Charlotte elections, Mecklenburg County elections, statewide elections, uh, and elections for the small towns in the county.
0: Oh, so did, when you were there, was there a voter ID law or a law similar to that?
1: No. No, this was before the voter ID law was initiated by the General Assembly.
0: Okay. What, do you have a take on the voter ID laws? What do you think of that?
1: They're a very bad idea. It's, it's hard for people like me and like you to, to think that people would not have a photo ID. How do you cash a check? Uh, how do you draw a uh, And so for us, thinking that people will not have a photo ID just in their normal course of events is very difficult. But the fact is that a large number of people, especially minority citizens, especially uh, older people often, do not in their regular course of life have a photo ID They just don't so when you require a photo ID to vote that means they need to go through a process that you and I don't have to go through we already have one so it it doesn't mean anything to us but to a significant number of people uh, it turns out millions of people across the country they have to go through a special procedure, which means what? Well, it means first of all, they have to gather the documents that are necessary to get a photo ID, birth certificates, uh, proof of residency such as a, uh, an electric or a gas bill, uh, things of that, they have to collect that stuff. Then they have to go down someplace, a special, a special trip, go down someplace like uh, the uh, motor vehicle, department and get turn in that stuff get a photo ID and now that all has to be done has to be thought of and done for the election okay and so it creates a special burden now you say you want to vote isn't a special burden something you would do When when you think of it that way you have to say okay what do you get when you vote you don't you you don't get any reparation. Uh, you have a microscopically small uh, chance of your candidates winning rather than the other candidates. Microscopically small chance. How often are votes determined by one vote? Almost never. Uh, when I, I was on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Board, there was only one time that one vote decided the result. And that was in one of the small towns for mayor, I think, it was decided by one vote. So my chances of vote so why should I go vote? Well, I feel better about it, right? It's my patriotic duty to do that. Yeah, uh, That doesn't carry much vote. Yeah, that, <laughs> that that's nice, but it doesn't carry much vote. Uh, so So when you create an additional burden Particular class of people, you reduce their chance of voting. How much? Well, we don't know. Uh, the research on this would indicate that uh, photo ID laws maybe make a small difference, uh, a percent, or uh, of course elections are sometimes hard, determined by a percenter, like in 2000 in Florida, where the result was a few hundred votes, uh, uh, but but more importantly, uh, this has an impact on some voters, older voters, minority voters, poor voters, because who is it that doesn't have a photo ID to, to, to cast checks? Poor people, okay, not rich people, poor people. So it does make a difference. Moreover, I question that research that says it's a small difference, and here's why. When a state enacts a photo ID law, the people who support poor people get to work right away to encourage them and to help them get their documents together, help them go down and get a photo ID. But that that won't last. I think over time, a photo ID uh, requirement will significantly reduce the number of votes of poor people and especially uh, minority citizens. Uh, that's a guess. I, I don't know that. But I think it, because that special effort to help them will fade over time. But in any case, we already know it makes some difference.
0: Yeah. Do you think that um the people enacting these voter ID laws, do you think they're doing it for the purpose of suppressing poor and minority voters? Or do you think that it's really a security thing for the election? Well,
1: it's hard to determine motives and things uh, there have been some public statements uh from legislators who've done this that clearly indicated they understood the effect but I worked in Republican politics for let's see from nineteen fifty nine until the early nineties so that's what forty years uh thirty years uh so i I worked with Republicans a lot and I know many Republican workers, I can't speak for legislators, but many Republican workers do sincerely believe that in majority-minority precincts there is cheating. So I don't discount that at least many Republicans who support these photo ID laws and even many legislators support it. So at least in part because they, they think that it will cut down on uh, on illegal voting. But they also know, they know that it will also hurt minority voting. And so you have to say, if you're a legislator and trying to determine what's a problem and what isn't, is illegal voting a problem? Well, it, it just isn't. But this has been carefully studied for a long time. people. Republicans run the election process. I was a Republican when I was running the election process. can tell you that that's not a problem. But is low turnout a problem? Absolutely. The United States has the lowest voter turnout of any of the developed countries, I think with the exception of Switzerland. Uh, But for the rest of the developed countries, voter turnout is far above. what it is in the United States. So we have to say, what is the balance of the problem? Is voting illegally a problem or or is getting people out to vote a problem? So you don't want to put barriers in front of the process of voting when that voting is already a problem. Moreover, uh, if there is a problem uh, in, in, uh, let let me restate that. In the cases where there have been uh, example prosecuted convicted of election fraud usually involved uh, absentee voting not in person and when republican legislators have enacted photo id laws those photo id laws have applied to in person voting yeah. not absentee voting think of it this way if you're going to if you're going to violate election laws by in person voting what do you have to do well you go you go down to the voting place you have to trust that nobody there knows the person you're impersonating. Because if they do, they'll know you're not them. And you'll get caught red handed committing a felony. Yeah. You also have to count that nobody there knows you. You have to count that the person you're impersonating hasn't already voted. Because if you come in and say you're John Jones and John Jones has already voted, they're going to know you're a crook. <laughs> Uh, And and what do you get as a payoff if you're successful in impersonating voting? What do you get? One vote for your candidate. One vote. One vote. So you took a risk of committing a felony to to get your candidate one vote when elections are not not, not, uh, uh, ever, almost never determined by one vote. So who would do that? And the answer is (laughs) nobody would
0: do that. (laughs) That's just absurd. And in fact, nobody does it. Since you brought up problems with absentee voting, do you see problems coming up with mail-in votings because of the pandemic?
1: No, I don't. Uh, the, the problems that have arisen in the past voting have overwhelming this situation. Uh, you have a small county and you have absentee voting fraud for the election of these sheriffs. Why? What is the sheriff in a small county in charge of? Well, preventing gambling, prostitution, and drugs. So you have an incentive for absentee voting fraud to get a sheriff in order, in, in order to protect corruption. Uh, it rarely occurs other than that. And in places where you set the absentee voting up carefully, as they have, for example, in North Carolina, uh, you can, in fact, catch it if it occurs. Um, so it, it tends to be very rare. Uh, I was only indicating that it's more likely to occur there than it is in in-person voting. Uh, but but you, you, the states can, and in the main, have set up reasonable procedures catch it if it occurs, to prevent those votes from being counted, and then to prosecute those who engage in it. Uh, it, it, It's not rocket science. Uh, Something that can be done. Now, it is to be sure, if when we expand uh, absentee voting this fall, as we will because of the virus, uh, you're going to have to be very careful about looking at, carefully at those votes to make sure that there is no fraud but it it certainly can be done and needs to be done it would be helpful however if the federal government would give the states some additional funding for this process yeah because it costs money you're going to need more people to count those votes you're going to need more people to look at the signatures you're going to need more people to, to look at it so it's something to be concerned about but not something to avoid doing. And I'm talking now about expanding absentee voting. It's it's something to be concerned about, but not something that you shouldn't do given the situation of the virus and the importance of the election this fall. You have to do what you have to do. Uh, and so you need to put in the proper uh, safeguards and make sure those votes are accurately counted. It can be done.
0: Um, so, I saw that you have advised governments in, redistric- in redistricting. So, first of all, like, what's the purpose of redistric- redistricting after the census is drawn every 10 years? And also, like, how are the districts drawn?
1: The, the first answer to that is that people move around. And so, various geographic areas change in 10 years between censuses. So, you get maldistrict uh, or malapportion. Uh, The situation where some districts now have more people than they ought to have, and some districts have too few. And so uh, under the one person, one vote rules of the Supreme Court uh, in interpreting our Constitution, uh, districts have to be drawn every 10 years to bring them back into proportion so that each district has about the same number of people. Congressional districts have to have exactly the same number according to the court, Uh, and so whether it's exactly the same number of people or roughly the same number of people, you have to restrict every 10 years. Uh, Every state does this differently. Uh, In general, uh, congressional districts are redrawn by the state legislature, Uh, and in most states the governor participates in that as well. Local uh, and most state legislatures re- redistrict themselves, uh, so they draw their own districts, which is a bad idea.
0: So I know that gerrymandering is the um, effect of like state legislatures drawing their own congressional districts. But in theory, especially with like the bipartisan committees that you just mentioned, in theories, what should um, the district drawers should be like? Be looking at and like why should they try to be? making districts look a certain way? Uh, well, let, let's start by saying that uh, the, how the
1: districts look is not as important as how they function. Uh, districts that look funny in terms of, of their shape might, I say might, in some cases, uh, actually be good, fair districts. And districts that look good, as you look at the map, they're nice and compact, so forth and so on, can nevertheless, a uh, gerrymandered. Uh, so, uh, shape is, is one consideration. Uh, when anyone draws it, they should follow what are called traditional districting principles. Uh, Compact is one traditional districting principle. Another
0: is you want to follow uh, local jurisdiction. So, you want to
1: avoid dividing local jurisdiction as possible. What you need to keep in mind is these traditional districting principles are in conflict with each other <laughs> and in conflict with one person, one vote. So that when you're drawing districts, you're, you've got all these balls in the air at the same time that you're juggling. You want to have compact districts, but you want to follow uh, local boundaries. You want to follow uh, natural features. Uh, and your districts have to be about the same population. So you do the best you can. But but I would argue then, after you've done that, you've drawn a plan, and the plan looks good, and you've satisfied as many of these principles as you can, then you say, okay, how would this work in practice? Would, in practice, this fairly translate votes into seats in the legislature? Now if it if it does, then it's a good plan. If it doesn't, then maybe you should rethink how you draw it and how how you satisfy those traditional districting principles. So that's a two part test. I would say draw the districts first and then look at the partisan impact of those districts. Because you want to do both.
0: So I know that a lot of politicians actually aim to do the opposite and they try to like when their party is the majority in the state house they try to have the representation not be proportional to the voters, and they try to over-represent their party. So I know that's gerrymandering. So can you just explain a little bit how gerrymandering works on a practical level? Sure. Uh, it's, it, it's a matter of packing and cracking.
1: Uh, we know where the voters are because we've got the vote translated down into precincts. and precincts are reasonably small units. Of geography, so uh, what I want to do if I'm going to gerrymand for my party is I want to pack voters of the other party into a few districts. Then that party will win those districts. That's right, they will. But they they'll have wasted votes. They'll have they'll they'll win those districts by big margins. And that's what I want them to do. And they, they will win those districts. But that will tie their voter into those districts. And then I want to crack the remaining voters of the other party. I want to split them so they're a minority in all of the remaining districts. So I pack my opponents, my opponent's voters to a few districts and then crack their remaining voters into the majority. And if I do that carefully, and if I do it without being greedy, try to get too many votes, I can do that successfully, and the other party will never win any election. Now, uh, what we want to understand here is that uh, Republicans have a natural advantage in redistricting, uh, they have a natural advantage because minority voters concentrated in cities, and therefore it's very easy for Republicans to pack Democratic voters in cities. And it looks natural; those don't have to be oddly shaped. Uh, they don't have to; they can follow local jurisdiction. Uh, but nevertheless, that packs Democratic voters. Republican voters are more scattered, so it's more easy to crack remaining Democratic voters uh, in the remaining district. So in the gerrymandering game, Republicans have a built-in advantage. Many state legislatures have used that and abused uh, in uh, Alabama, for example, Supreme Court ruled uh, that the legislators went too far. They packed minority voters more than they needed under the Voting Rights Act. But to some extent, uh, Republicans can argue they they have they have packed minority voters because they had to. And that's an argument that they're made, but they can often go too far. Uh, so, because of the Voting Rights Act, and because of the natural concentration of Democratic voters in cities, uh, Republicans have an advantage in gerrymandering.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's I actually didn't th- think about like the difference between Democrats and Republicans and their ability to, gerry- to gerrymander naturally. So, like zooming out. Um, what do you think the effects of gerrymandering and restrictions on voting, such as voter ID laws, are on the democratic process?
1: Well, the, the, all of these things, whether they're done by Republicans or by Democrats, uh, reduce the, uh, the, the uh, faith that the voters have in the democratic process. Uh, it's not just that they misrepresent what the voters want. That's, that's a short-term problem. But it, it it reduces all of our uh, confidence in the system, and voters have to have confidence that their votes are fairly cast and fairly counted, and that they're and that they're represented. When I lose a political contest in Congress or in the state legislature or in my county commission or city council, I accept that loss. Because I think I got a fair shake. If I don't think I got a fair shake, I'm I don't accept that loss. Uh maybe I respond to that with violence. Maybe I pull down statues somewhere because I'm not getting a fair shake. It's important that people have confidence in the democratic process. It's the it's the very basis of our constitutional system and of democracy. And it's important to uh uphold that and 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 that's what and, and that's what the people who work in our election the people who count the votes and register voters they are working very hard to maintain that confidence in the election
0: yeah all right um i think that's all we have thank you so much thank you so much for joining us theodore that was great i learned a lot that was super informative This has been an episode of We've Got Next Podcast. I am, as always, Julian. Please tune in to listen to us next Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, Go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Go follow us on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Go follow us on Instagram at We've Got Next Pod. Rate, subscribe, like, follow, do it all. Thank you so much, and tune in next Wednesday. I'm not afraid of